Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good week, and hard to believe we are halfway through our first full week of the month of August. What I also find hard to believe is that um, this episode to uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812, is our epilogue. In other words, we are now at that time where we are getting ready to finish up another uh, podcast uh, book topic series. What do you know? Nine episodes, well, this episode uh, tonight being number nine in this um, book topic series, but nine episodes. I'd say that's uh, quite a good um, accomplishment to say the, the least. Uh, this wasn't uh, the biggest of uh, books in terms of uh, page volume, but it was certainly enough uh, for me to be able to go about uh, compiling enough uh, information to give you all as good of a story about just how vital this fort in um, not just a fort in Ohio, but how Fort Meigs uh, served a um, vital role in the Northwest campaign of the War of 1812 and being able to um, not only just uh, withstand one siege, but uh, but for American forces to prevail in two sieges, and better yet, American forces were able to prevent uh, the British from breaking through, along with their Indian allies, to where if they had gotten a hold of Fort Meigs, not only would they have uh, prevailed in getting a hold of the fort, but perhaps Ohio, and uh, not only just Ohio, but perhaps making their way further east, for all we know, east into uh, Pennsylvania, and maybe, just maybe, making their way into Washington, D.C., a wilderness, but a wilderness that, if not protected, a wilderness that could um, have uh, deadly results. You know, just because Washington, D.C. in 1813 was, a, you know, still considered by many to be a wilderness, it didn't mean that uh, outsiders could still um, spark uh, trouble. Outsiders could, um, could uh, engage in activities that could... Um, put the people of uh, Washington, D.C., whom were living there, uh, on heightened alert. Well, I'm sure some of you are wondering, with this epilogue to Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, what can there be uh, to discuss that has not already been uh, discussed? Well, I do know that we are going to um, learn about um, Fort Meigs in terms of what became of the fort in the aftermath of the War of 1812, uh, I will talk. Um, I will talk about um, what happened to Fort Meigs in the aftermath of the war um, here momentarily. But I will also um, bring about another um, uh, segment piece of uh, where Fort Meigs um, went in terms of its journey uh, at the very end of the uh, epilogue. So uh, there's nothing wrong with. Uh, putting that in a two-part uh, series. Uh, I, we will also discuss um, what became of uh, men like General William Henry Harrison, Colonel Henry Proctor, uh, General uh, Winchester, I should say, uh, General, um, uh, General, um, yes, General uh, William, uh, James Winchester, pardon me, we will um, 
learn as to what became of him, as well as Brigadier General uh, William Hull, whom had uh, surrendered Fort Detroit in uh, June, rather in August of 1812. We will also um, learn about uh, what became of uh, Brigadier uh, General Green Clay uh, following uh, the war itself. And uh, we will also uh, learn about, um, as odd as this might be to discuss, it's nothing wrong, but I do think it is something worth mentioning because I do remember uh, sharing about it with you all from a much earlier episode uh, to this series about the Great Black Swamp. In other words, we might, I think it's worth pointing out about what became of the Great Black Swamp in the years after the War of 1812's Northwest Campaign had officially ended. So uh, we do have a lot of uh, ground to cover in this uh, epilogue, uh, but one thing I will point out too is that um, I have no doubts uh, somewhere down the road um, that I probably will be sharing uh, with you all other uh, book topic uh, podcast series um, with regards to the War of 1812, and I say that because um, this, for one, it's a forgotten war. Secondly, it's not so much that it's a forgotten war, but um, but many people, not just here in the United States, but elsewhere around the world, don't realize that America had to fight a second war for independence from Britain on from an economical uh, standpoint, especially um, given the fact that um, American sailors, as I have mentioned many of times before, were harassed on the high seas, were captured by, um, not only just by the British, but by uh, French, uh, French uh, vessels. And those um, American sailors, most notably if they were captured by uh, British enemy ships, were forced into impressment. In other words, they were forced to, um, they were taken off of their, their own vessels only to be forced against their own will to fight alongside um, that of the British. So, yes, most people do forget about all that, but most of all, when people think of American conflicts, they tend to think mostly of the American Revolution and of the United States uh, Civil War, or the Civil War, I should say. But to me, the War of 1812 is very worth uh, sharing about because, like I said, it's a forgotten conflict, but it's one of those uh, forgotten conflicts that must be uh, revisited constantly in understanding where America evolved as the late as by the time the 18th century was coming to an end, and where America evolved in the early years of the 19th century. So uh, going forward, let's be prepared for our uh, first leadoff question to the epilogue of uh, men of patriotism, courage, and enterprise: uh, Fort Meigs and the War of 1812 by Larry L. Nelson. Uh, following General Harrison's victory over British forces and Indian allies under uh, Colonel uh, Proctor, what became of Fort Meigs going forward? Well, along the confines of the Maumee Rapids remained a small unit of Ohio militiamen whom continuously manned Fort Meigs after General Harrison and Brigadier General Green Clay had gathered larger forces, or I should say troops, uh, to go uh, northward into Canada. Uh, secondly, the fort itself remained in use after the Northwest Campaign ended in late 1813 by serving uh, primarily as a, as a supply station or a, a depot hub for um, 
troops and equipment uh, navigating along the Maumee River. So it didn't um, lay dormant, which was a good thing. It still had uh, use, but it did not retain um, a vast um, population of um, soldiers as it had uh, during um, both uh, sieges. Uh, May of 1815 saw the Ohio Militia Unit receive instructions to be sent onward to Detroit. A, a, a fellow by the name, or I should say an officer by the name of Lieutenant Allman, A-L-M-O-N, Lieutenant Allman Gibbs, whom was a commander of the Ohio Militia at Fort Meigs, he went about assembling to parading uh, 40 soldiers under his helm. So that, if that tells you anything right there in terms of the uh, scope, or I should say size, of um, troop reduction, that to me is quite a uh, reduction, to say the least, that you've got under 100 soldiers um, that are manning the fort, given that the British and the Indians have left. It can be, in a, in a sense, you can almost see this as a, as a period of peace of sorts, even though you still have to be on... Um, high ground because you never know what could uh, resurface but it is fair to say that given that um, when Colonel Proctor and his forces along with the Indian allies had retreated we really had struck a blow uh, in the heart of uh, Colonel Proctor obviously he did not have the uh, manpower uh, his supplies were very limited and whatever supplies he had uh, were not able to be of uh, significant use, uh, given that um, Proctor's uh, forces, including that of Indian allies, were um, not only routed, but were just literally taken by surprise at what happened, at how, um, at how quickly um, things went from good to bad um, by the time the river, uh, the Battle of the Thames or at Moravian Town um, took place. So, yes, um, Forty soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Allman Gibbs. Uh, so in May of 1815, uh, the occasion itself marked the final time that uh, troops were looked over to the flag being lowered and the colors retired. As the ceremony ended, all 40 soldiers embarked upon a schooner vessel known as the Black Snake. In 1817, uh, two years after uh, the last troops had departed from Fort Meigs, I did not know this. Uh, as a matter of fact, I did not really even know about it when my wife and I visited um, Fort Meigs uh, back at the start of last month during our vacation uh, trip to Ohio. So um, I happened to stumble upon the information, <laughs> believe it or not, folks looking through uh, Wikipedia. I know, here I am, many of you are probably thinking, how often would Kirk need to look at Wikipedia to refer to something? Believe it or not, there are a fair amount of times, folks, where I have um, looked up um, terminology through uh, Wikipedia before I come on the air to podcast, but I don't see anything wrong with that because, um, you know, I do need to make sure I get my information straight. I also need to probably understand what certain... Um, what certain uh, words mean. You know, yes, you can hear about something but in terms of a word, but if you're not sure what it really describes or what it entails, then look it up. And, th and by doing so, you'll have a 
better understanding of the of the uh, term itself and how to go about using it in sentences or better yet uh, explain it to um, you all my uh, fellow listeners so um Anyways, uh, something did um, happen uh, two years after um, the War of 1812 ended at Fort Meigs. It just so happened that um, a treaty took place. A treaty itself, folks, uh, occurred at Fort Meigs along the Maumee Rapids. Uh, The Treaty of Fort Meigs did not have anything to do with uh, Britain and the United States. It actually had to do with the United States government and the Indian tribes that lived along uh, northwest Ohio. It just so happens that the Treaty of Fort Meigs in 1817 was the most important Indian treaty by the U.S. government involving Ohio since the 1795 Treaty of Greenville, And that treaty from 1795, um, the Indians were forced to cede um, territory uh, in southern and eastern Ohio. But they were allowed to retain um, their lands uh, to the northwest, north of the Ohio River. Well, with regards to the uh, Treaty of Fort Meigs, or the 1817 Treaty of Fort Meigs, I should say, the treaty brought about multiple Indian tribes whom unfortunately uh, had to cede their um, or fork over their remaining lands in northwest Ohio directly to the United States government. I learned that the agreement consisted of 21 articles, and we won't go through all 21. That that would take uh, probably a long time, to say the least. It included an addendum. That's spelled A-D-D-E-N-D-U-M. An addendum is what we call a separate document. But the treaty uh, also uh, covered um, uh, what's called entailing land session, allocation of Indian reservations, money compensation, terms of acceptance. Well, you know, it's more than just signing a piece of paper when a treaty happens, uh, regardless of the circumstances. But on September 29th of 1817, that was the day that the treaty was signed, um, Indian chiefs and warriors uh, present uh, were those from the Wyandotte, Seneca, Delaware, Shawnee, Ottawa, uh, Chippewa, uh, Potawatomi, uh, uh, to to give you a a fair number of uh, tribes that were on, on, on hand. Uh, the Michigan territorial governor, of uh, whose name was Lewis Cass, was present. And the reason why he would have been present is because some of those Indian tribes living in northwest Ohio would have probably uh, had territory or land uh, that was smack dab on the Ohio-Michigan line, given that southeast Michigan, uh, what was then Frenchtown and now present-day Monroe, Michigan, um, including places like Adrian, uh, Tecumseh, Temperance. They are not far from the um, Michigan-Ohio line. South of Detroit, if you uh, want to have any indication of where uh, some of those places in Michigan are that I just mentioned a moment ago. So that's why uh, Michigan Territory Governor Lewis Cass is present. As for um, a representative uh, for Ohio, you have General Duncan MacArthur, Sadly, these uh, tribes that I've uh, mentioned, 
per the uh, warriors present, were forced to surrender about 4.6 million acres of land, not only in northwest Ohio, but as well, but this included northeast Indiana, where present-day Fort Wayne is, um, and this also would have included uh, southern Michigan, say, for example, like Monroe and uh, Adrian, uh, Dundee, uh, Tecumseh, uh, just to give you uh, an indication of where, uh, with regards to uh, southern Michigan. Uh, what did the 1817 Treaty of Fort Meigs reserve for Indian nations whom called northwest Ohio their ancestral home? Well, the Wyandotte Nation received land uh, about 12 miles square in Upper Sandusky around Fort Ferry. The Seneca Nation got 30,000 acres on this on the Sandusky River near Wolf Creek. The Shawnee, on the other hand, they did receive land, but they got land in different um, areas. They got 10 miles square around Wapakoneta, or, you know, some people may say Wapakoneta. Of course, when I think of Wapakoneta, there's uh, one person in mind, a very famous American, whom was actually the first to... Uh, Walk on the Moon, uh, the late Neil Armstrong, who um, sadly died 11 years ago, but he hails he hailed from Wapakoneta. As a matter of fact, he's probably one of Wapakoneta's most uh, famous uh, citizens. The Shawnee also received uh, 48 square miles near the entryways of the Little Miami and, Sk and Skyado Rivers. However, uh, some of the Indian nations that were present... I thought this was um, quite a kicker onto itself. The Delaware Nation possessed territory south of the Wabash River, being in uh, Indiana. The Chippewa, or what would, or in, from Canada, would have been referred to as the Ojibwe. They came from northern Wisconsin as well as northern Minnesota. The Potawatomi, they came from the upper Mississippi Valley. What do these tribes have in common, folks? They were not all provided or given any land reservations in Ohio. Yes, these uh, tribes had to relocate to Ohio because of conflicts, but yet because they weren't originally from what we know as the Buckeye State, they were not given any um, land reservation or protection whatsoever. However, um, some of the tribes whom had allied with the United States government against Britain during the War of 1812 did receive uh, various uh, cash amount sums for losses, that is, property loss, um, uh, loss of land. Um, so if, if you were an Indian tribe and you did side with the United States government, the U.S. government did compensate you um, as best as they were able to. I don't know how much money they would have gotten, but whatever amount of money they were given, I'm sh you would hope that it was at a respectable sum given all the um, internal issues. You know, here at one time, you know, we'll, you know, it seems like it's a pattern that has its, a pattern that, um, that is strong at one time and then it dies off in a time of war, but after the war or conflict is over, that pattern of uh, treaties uh, resumes and the pattern of, um, of one side gaining, gaining land and while the other side you know, is losing their ancestral land, it, sadly it's a never-ending cycle.
and you know, yes, uh, Washington, George Washington did envision. How do we say in the post-revolutionary war world, he uh, wanted um, he wanted a, a United States that was not divided, but he wanted a United States that was um, better protected. Um, yes, inland waterways was one solution, but another means of better protection was to be free from outsiders. That was the Indians. I'm not trying to get political, folks, but this is uh, this is the world that um, in which these events were taking place in the um, early 19th century. Now, as for what's going on in the Michigan Territory, I found this very, very um, interesting. As a matter of fact, I read about it through Wikipedia, and and I'm sure some of you are probably going to think, why would this have any significance? Well, well, for one, Michigan does border Ohio, but two, Michigan gained something out of the uh, Treaty of Fort Meigs. For some, it might, yes, some people would have benefited, others obviously didn't. But uh, what happened in the Michigan Territory five days before the Treaty of Fort Meigs was officially signed? The initial um, cornerstone, or I should say foundation, blocks for the University of Michigan campus in Detroit had been officially laid out. Can you believe that, folks? The University of Michigan's campus in Detroit, the initial cornerstone or foundation blocks have been uh, laid out. The Fort Meigs Treaty included, if you're on the Indian side, um, this is, it's unfortunate, but it, sadly it happened. The Fort Meigs Treaty included forfeiture of 1,920 acres, that's about 7.8 kilometers square, of land previously belonged to Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi tribes that now became intended for the college at Detroit. August 26, 1817, a month before the treaty was officially signed, uh, Reverend John Monteith and Father Gabriel Richard, whom ministered to French Catholics at St. Anne de Detroit, oversaw the creation to the University of Michigan. Hear this word out. Catholipistamade. What does Catholipistamade mean? In quotations, folks, School of Universal Knowledge. Well, the University of Michigan is a uh, top-flight uh, university in the United States, and it is a very hard school to get into. Um, they, From what I know, they have a very good engineering program, medical school, law school. It's a very, very um, well-rounded school. As a matter of fact, some have um, referred to the University of Michigan as a public ivy, just like um, the University of Virginia is. And the reason I know, and the reason I know that um, that the University of Virginia is a public ivy is is called a public ivy is because uh, my dad um, and my mom, both of my parents being University of Virginia graduates, have often uh, said that about uh, the University of Virginia, given how uh, prestigious it was. So, um, in 1837, um, 20 years after the Treaty of Fort Meigs was signed, um, the University of Michigan, um, well, Michigan, for one, was officially admitted into the Union as a state. I want to say it was admitted as, I believe it was admitted as the 24th uh, state. 
I want to say at least uh, the 24th state it was, but um, in 1837, the University of Michigan relocated to um, Ann Arbor, just west of Detroit. University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, that's the main campus, uh, but there still is a campus in, there is a campus, I should say, in Detroit, but I, um, you know, on one hand, it was very interesting how the University of Michigan came about with this treaty, but but I do know that it, it probably did come at an unfortunate expense with the removal of um, Indian tribes whom, um, whose um, ancestral lands or territories would have uh, encompassed what we now know as um, present-day Ann Arbor and more than likely uh, present-day Detroit um, as, and all that. Despite... Um, Another thing that I did forget to mention earlier, and I'll tell you all now, we are also going to learn about Tecumseh. Well, I mean, we've already learned a great deal about Tecumseh, but we uh, should learn about his legacy. So that's the next question here. Uh, despite Tecumseh's death at the Battle of Thames from October 5th, 1813, did he receive large widespread recognition? Uh, the answer is yes. He was uh, greatly admired by Native Americans in the United States, including the First Nations uh, peoples in Canada whom lived south of the Arctic Circle, due to the fact that his principles, or I should say beliefs, stood above all things tribal identity. What, I, what I'm referring to here, folks, is that Tecumseh did not um, cater to just one or two tribes. His um, envision, this grand envision in terms of overthrowing all things new and, and seeing to it that his people, all of his people, return to the old ways of living, get preserved so that, um, so that uh, future generations not only would uh, un understand where their elders came from, but future generations would preserve the traditions and customs that the elders had um, sacrificed so much for. Could it be fair to say that Tecumseh, you know, we hear, you know, we hear what's called old money, and then we hear what's called new money, but then we hear that old money and new money don't always go hand in hand. Could it be that perhaps Tecumseh was a product of old money? And could it be fair to say that, um, chiefs or warriors like uh, Little Turtle of the Miami Confederacy whom uh, bought into the Treaty of Greenville. Yes, Little Turtle was the first um, Native American uh, Indian to receive a smallpox inoculation. Yes, he was looked after. But for Tecumseh, what, at what price? Yes, the government may have looked after Little Turtle, but he went along with the fact that it was okay to cede over all that land in southern and eastern Ohio to the government. It could be fair to say in Tecumseh's eyes that Little Turtle had become something of new money and that the government had even provided him with a place to live. The government had even paid for his uh, smallpox inoculation. Thomas Jefferson had given Little Turtle uh, smallpox, smallpox inoculation, um, what we might think of as test kits today, to give to his people. So it was almost as if Little Turtle was being bought by the government, but yet 
Tecumseh just didn't buy into it. He knew that all these incentives in the long run would be favoring the United States government, but as for future generations, who's to say if they would really benefit from all of this long term? Canada honored Tecumseh for his display of heroism during the War of 1812 to where there are two places in Ontario named for him, Tecumseh in southwest Ontario and New Tecumseh in central Ontario. And yes, there is a place in Michigan, in southern Michigan, called Tecumseh, Michigan. So even in the United States, um, Tecumseh is recognized, and I will mention that here in a moment. In 1931, uh, 92 years ago, folks, uh, the Canadian government officially declared Tecumseh as a person of national historic importance. I would uh, agree with it. I would agree 100% that Tecumseh is someone who is of uh, national historical importance and needs to um, be learned about in every way uh, possible. Uh, another unique um, thing about 1931 is that um, the United States, in 1931, I kid you not, folks, had officially adopted the Star-Spangled Banner as its official national anthem. So in eight years from now, in 2031, we will, America, the United States of America will be celebrating the centennial of the uh, Star-Spangled Banner as its official national anthem. Tecumseh um, did get respect amongst Americans like General William Henry Harrison, whom had gone to war against him. Now, this was not in quotation, although there was um, something in uh, quotes that Harrison um, said about Tecumseh that had a lot of um, merit and uh, just had a lot of um, significant uh, relevance to it. But I felt it was best to define all of what Harrison said in my own words. So I had to think to myself, okay, if I were General William Henry Harrison, how could I go about best viewing Tecumseh? Okay, here we go. General Harrison viewed Tecumseh as a person whom was uncommon on the grounds that he didn't constantly stir up trouble. You know how some people constantly stir up trouble, so if they're constantly doing that, then you would it'd probably be fair to say that they are common. They are common in that they not only do certain things over and over that might be good, at the same time they could also be doing things repetitively that, that cause um, red flags to occur left and right to where you have to wonder, will they ever even learn their lessons to begin with? But no, Tecumseh was uncommon on the ground that he never constantly stirred up trouble. But when he arose, that is when he emerged, made his presence known, his presence onto itself became electrifying, which garnered broad support from all corners. But yet, when his presence became electrifying, it also sounded the alarm. In this case, it sounded the alarm for the United States government. For Tecumseh, that primary objective would went about uh, creating revolutions, movements, where the old ways of living were to prevail over all things new, which threatened the Indians' survival along the Northwest Territory. 
and not just Northwest Territory, but perhaps onward when you go further west into what we know as the Great Plains with the Sioux Nation, all the way to um, the Southwest with the um, Navajo, the the Nazazi, Pueblo nations, into um, into um, the, the um, Upper Mountain. Um, uh, west region with uh, Wyoming, the Arapaho uh, Nation. So basically for um, Tecumseh, this was his last stand, and losing his life at the Battle of Thames ultimately represented that. When Tecumseh died, so did, um, so did the Indian uh, resistance along the Northwest uh, Territory. Uh, what became of Colonel Henry Proctor following his uh, troop forces defeat at the Battle of Thames? December of 1814 saw Colonel Proctor get tried via court-martial. I think most of us know what a court-martial is. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, I'll just tell you here real quick. A court-martial basically is a trial involving armed forces personnel. That could Yes, it could mean staff. But it could also mean high-ranking officers, like colonels, even generals. Nobody is immune when it comes to a court-martial, I'll tell you that much. So basically, uh, Colonel Proctor was tried via court-martial at Quebec in regards to his conduct, or I should say actions, during the retreat from and in the midst of the battle at the Thames. The uh, jury... Um, or I should say the judge, deemed uh, Colonel Proctor's retreat to be poorly conducted. He was found guilty on the grounds of lacking, um, of lacking improper uh, judgment. He was suspended six months with no pay. That's tough, folks. It's one thing to probably be suspended, say, a couple of weeks without pay, but to be suspended six months with no pay... His sentence, though, was reduced. He basically got a reprimand instead. However, the conviction did end all further military service opportunities for Colonel Proctor. He returned to England in 1815, where he lived, uh, lived out the remainder of his life until 1822, when he died at the age of 59. I think it's fair to say when a British officer lost in a battle... That it was never a good thing, and I think there is a simple reason for that. Britain wants to be viewed as the mightiest military power in the world, and when a when a mighty force like Britain loses, then people have to say, "Boy, you've got a lot of explaining to do, not just to us, but perhaps in a court in a in an actual courtroom before your peers." Uh, what became? of American, or I should say of a U.S. Army officer, William Hull, whom had surrendered Fort Detroit to General Isaac Brock on August 16th, 1812. You know, I did some more research on what became of William Hull after the surrender at Fort Detroit. And while it is fair to say that most historians don't um, speak very highly of William Hull, given that he um, did not put up a fight at Fort Detroit and surrendered. In the years after the War of 1812, 
William Hole did emerge as a better person. In other words, when he died, um, it was almost as if by the right before he died, that um, that whatever um, was hanging over him, that is a, a gray cloud or whatever um, was um, whatever monkey was on his back, you know, trying to remove uh, something that you you know that you wished had not happened and. You're trying to do everything you can to make up for a terrible misdeed, misfortune. William Hull, over time, folks, was able to um, recover his image, but um, and I'll uh, talk more about that here in a moment. But um, in 1814, he did um, go before court, and like Colonel Henry Proctor, William Hull underwent a court-martial trial hearing, and he was found guilty. Whereas uh, Colonel Henry Proctor, or I should say British Colonel Henry Proctor, had been found guilty of um, lacking in uh, proper uh, judgment to, um, to uh, what do you call it, uh, not, um, to, uh, not uh, properly uh, coordinating the retreat, Colonel, uh, not Colonel, uh, Gen- General William Hull was found guilty of cowardice to neglect of duty. What do I mean by cowardice, folks? Cowardice, to me, in this case, is not um, willing to put up a fight. In other words, he basically just surrendered over the fort and not bothered to make any means of showing resistance. He um, basically just handed over the fort to the British without... um, thinking about the well-being of his troops, or let alone uh, the people um, in Detroit, you know, the citizens. But William Hull does have an excuse for it. It actually, to me, sounds like a plausible excuse, but there again, uh, it all stems from the fact, though, that he could have done some things differently. Uh, Neglect of duty, there again, not thinking about the well-being of those below him, in the knowing that not only he had surrendered Fort Detroit, but doing so without having engaged uh, the British and the Indians in a direct uh, fight. He was ordered, folks, you know, whereas Colonel, uh, British Colonel Henry Proctor was suspended without pay for six months. Of course, that was changed to a reprimand. If that was bad enough, folks, um, William Hull given that he was found guilty, folks, he was ordered to be executed via a firing squad. He was going to be shot to death for this. It just so happens, folks, that um, William Hull's defense behind the Fort Detroit surrender stemmed upon lacking, in his eyes, lacking enough gunpowder and cannonballs to go about withstanding a long-term siege. The surrender of Fort Detroit, in, in his opinion, saved his troops, including the civilians, from attacks by the natives, being the Indians. And yes, uh, the Indians did attack uh, ferociously, but at the same time, I don't think it it would be fair to say that even American troops weren't uh, guilty of doing the same thing as well. Uh, So, you know, a double-edged sword there, but 
yes, you can understand for General Hull that um, he was concerned about the safety of his troops, given that he did not have enough am adequate ammunition on him. But if I were General Hull, of course, this is easier said than done, but if I were General Hull, or if I was an officer below him, I think it'd be better for me to say that if I were an officer below General Hull, I would have said to him, look, yes, we may not have enough ammunition, but the least we could do is fire some rounds of cannon at the British. Try to do what we can with what we have to scare them off. Even if we lose, we, can, we still can say that we lost without excuses. At least we would have lost without not having tried. So, you know, it's like that saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But for William Hull, in my opinion, he would have been better off at least using what was at his um, disposal to uh, attack the enemy. And even if he had not prevailed, he would not have uh, been frowned upon for uh, cowardice and neglect of duty. So whom um, came to uh, William Hull's rescue? How about President James Madison? He changed uh, William Hull's, um, he commuted William Hull's uh, sentencing from death to basically removal of military service. So in other words, William Hull never saw any action throughout the rest of the War of 1812's duration. But the reason for this um, change had to do with um, on the grounds uh, dating to William Hull's valiant services during the Revolutionary War, which were significant. But I, knowing what I know now, I think it is fair to say that Madison might have made a, the right choice. Had William Hull been executed, who's to say that um, that America would? Who's to say that America would have um, still been somewhat uh, unified behind this war? There wasn't full 100% unification, but I do believe, and I do have to wonder if General Hull had been executed, that the overall support for the war would have. Um, dropped even further hard to say but you just but you do have to wonder after um after uh, william hull was dismissed from the army he lived out the remainder of his life in newton massachusetts outside of boston he authored two books from his time in the war of 1812 one of them was the following detroit Defense of Brigadier General William Hull in 1814, and um, Memoirs of the Campaign of the Northwestern Army of the United States, A.D. After Death, 1812, that was published in 1824. Both books aimed at clearing William Hull of all wrongdoing at Fort Detroit. And when this book was published in 1824, it finally did help persuade many to change their views about the guy. And what do you know, folks? On May 30th, 1825, he got honored with a dinner in Boston. To me, this was the ultimate comeback for a guy whom was probably hated by a lot of people for, act, for being a coward. But yet, over time, his image did get restored. Sadly, William Hull did lose his son at, during the War of 1812 at Lundy's Lane, uh, the Battle of Niagara. He was the uncle to Isaac Hull. Why is Isaac Hull important? He captained 
the USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides, uh, during the War of 1812. And on November 29th of 1825, William Hull died at the age of 72. To think he lived long enough to see the Erie Canal be completed, um, which was, uh, at its day, uh, a remarkable engineering feat. Linking the Hudson River all the way to the uh, Great Lakes. 365 miles. And believe me, folks, the Erie Canal, an Erie Canal boat ride is well worth the experience. My wife and I got to do that last summer in uh, Fairport, New York, where we, um, south of Rochester, uh, where we um, got to uh, be uh, raised and lowered 25 feet each way. Our goal um, in the future is to do another Erie Canal ride um, along another part of New York State. Something tells me it might come about in the foreseeable future. Uh, what else is there to know about Brigadier General Green Clay besides his services as Brigadier General during the War of 1812? Well, for one, he was born in Virginia in 1757, um, not long after the Seven Years' War began. And I was blown away at this, but he was born in Powhatan County, which is a neighboring county um, not, it's a neighboring county per the uh, county that I reside in. So I did not know that he was uh, originally from Powhatan County. He fought in the American Revolutionary War, where he started out by enlisting as a private in Captain William McCracken's company to serving under General George Rogers Clark during the Illinois campaign. He went west to Kentucky after the Revolutionary War, um, where he went on to become a surveyor. Green Clay just so happens to be a cousin to U.S. congressman, or I should say he happened to be a cousin to U.S. congressman and statesman Henry Clay, whom hailed from uh, Ashland, Virginia. And um, believe it or not, folks, George Wythe uh, mentored uh, Henry Clay. So basically, Henry Clay studied law under the great uh, law professor of uh, George Wythe, whom also um, mentored uh, Thomas Jefferson John Marshall, uh, Littleton Taswell, uh, just to name a few uh, prominent uh, Virginians. In 1789, um, Green Clay was elected Kentucky's representative to the Virginia House of Delegates. He married a, a, a lady named Sally Lewis, and believe it or not, he really was considered to be a well-to-do person in the state of Kentucky. He died in 1828. Uh, 13 years after the War of 1812 ended, uh, he lived to be in his 70s. Uh, which state led the way in supplying multiple troops and supplies to the greater war effort throughout the War of 1812's duration? Well, that answer is none other than Kentucky, folks. Kentucky, well, for one, Kentucky didn't have any fortifications, a.k.a. military posts, to defend on its home soil, so therefore, many Kentucky soldiers frequently um, agreed to take up arms to fight against the British. And while this was very noble on their part, it sadly led to um, the Bluegrass State enduring more battle casualties than any other um, state that uh, sent out uh, men to fight in this um, conflict, or in this uh, greater war conflict. The, uh, the battles that saw um, a great deal of casualties amongst Kentuckians were, the first, were at the first siege of Fort Meigs, where um, 
650 Kentuckians either were killed or wounded, uh, which included um, Colonel uh, William Dudley, who made that uh, poor um, choice to uh, chase the enemy into the woods only to get routed and slaughtered, where only 150 uh, troops made it back out alive. And then the other one was at the uh, River Raisin, uh, French t French town, a.k.a. Uh, Monroe, Michigan. Um, so, yes, Kentucky um, performed a valiant deed by sending um, more men than any other state, but yet, uh, but yet lost a great deal of their own men whom were willing to make the ultimate sacrifices. As for geological features, um, what became of the Great Black Swamp after the War of 1812's Northwest Campaign had officially ended? Well, given the swamp itself ran between the Maumee and Portage River watersheds in northwest Ohio and northeast Indiana, the 1850s saw both states go about draining the swamp for agricultural purposes and better means of travel. The decades after the 1850s saw railroads make their presence known. So, you know, William Hull, folks, tried to cut a path uh, through the Great Black Swamp, but he failed. He failed because he could not overcome, or he and his uh, troops, rather, I should say, could not, sim they simply could not overcome all of the other elements, meaning that nature will prevail Elements that probably would say, hey, look, you know, you come in here, you know, you are going to um, encounter um, diseases like um, yellow fever. You could encounter diseases like malaria. You know, mosquitoes are very uh, prone in swamps. But somehow, um, as brilliant as man can be with uh, overcoming things, sometimes when he performs um feats like uh, draining the swamp, it sometimes can come back and bite them in the butt. There is uh, good news to report about the Great uh, Black Swamp and that starting in the second half of the 20th century, efforts um, began to um, preserve and restore sections of the swamp to pre-settlement uh, state uh, status. And back in 1993, the Black Swamp Conservancy um, organization was established. And since that time, folks, 17,600 acres have been preserved. That, to me, is quite a uh, remarkable um, accomplishment. And, and, of course, their goal would be to restore more um, acres of land that could... Um, be used as a means of preservation, not only for the present, but for future generations. But nonetheless, that's a, a, a great success story right there. Well, what became of General James Winchester following the fallout at Frenchtown, a.k.a. the River Raisin Massacre? Winchester got captured by an American Indian uh, chief of the Wyandotte tribe uh, by the name of Roundhead at Frenchtown and went about getting imprisoned in Canada for over a year. General Winchester, however, was released via prisoner exchange and assigned to oversee the District of Mobile, a.k.a. present-day Mobile, Alabama. After the War of 1812 ended, um, he returned home to Tennessee 
And in 1819, uh, he served on a state commission which oversaw the Tennessee-Missouri boundary. Yes, folks, Tennessee does border Missouri. And uh, what cities, uh, you know, if one were to ask me what city um, is near, uh, is right along that Tennessee-Missouri line, uh, the place uh, is east of Memphis. It's uh, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, I know Memphis, Tennessee is not far from the Tennessee-Missouri line either, but yes, uh, believe it or not, folks, Tennessee does border uh, Missouri. And so, yes, um, and another great thing about uh, General um, James Winchester was that he assisted in the founding to the city of Memphis. Another guy who uh, assisted with that was uh, none, other, none other than Andrew Jackson, and all of this was done before Andrew Jackson became president. Uh, Winchester, Tennessee is named after James Winchester, and, um, and in July of 1826, in late July of 1826, just a few weeks after John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, two former presidents, had died, on the same day, July 4th of 1826, just hours apart, Jefferson dying in the morning, Adams in the afternoon, um, James Winchester died um, in late July of 1826. He lived to be uh, 74 years old, which was uh, pretty old for that day in, uh, in time. Moving on now to General William Henry Harrison. Did General William Henry Harrison move to Ohio after the War of 1812 ended? In fact, he did, folks. He moved, he officially moved into Ohio in 1816, where he served in various capacities, most notably the United States House of Representatives from October of 1816 to March of 1819. He even had a stint in the United States Senate from March of 1825 to May of 1828. William Henry Harrison, uh, folks, he was born in 1773, three years after the Boston Massacre, and he was born months before the uh, Boston Tea Party incident occurred. But he, he was the son of Benjamin Harrison V, the signer whom was a signer to the Declaration of Independence. William Henry Harrison was born at Berkeley Plantation off of Virginia's historic State Route 5. If any of you have not been to Berkeley Plantation, I strongly recommend that you go. And believe it or not, at Berkeley Plantation, I kid you not, during the Civil War, that's um, Berkeley Plantation was the site to where... Um, a fellow by the name of uh, Daniel Adams Butterfield, I believe it was, he created the um, musical song Taps that has played at military funerals. So that uh, so a little unique Civil War history uh, happened at um, happened at Berkeley Plantation with the uh, creation of the uh, of the song Taps, which is still played uh, today. For uh, William Henry Harrison, though, sad. Um, he did become the ninth uh, president, ninth United States president, but died 31 days after being inaugurated. He um, gave the longest speech, about just over two hours, and it was brutally cold. He contracted pneumonia, never recovered, and he died. He was he lived to be 68 years old. He was the last president born as a British subject in the 13 colonies. He was the paternal grandfather of Benjamin Harrison, whom was the 23rd uh, president of the United States from 1889 to 1893. Whom went about owning the land on which Fort Meg stood in the years after War of 1812? 
1864, Timothy and Thomas Hayes, I should say brothers Timothy and Thomas Hayes, they bought the property and went about preserving the legacy of those whom fought at Fort Meigs. In 1907, the heirs to each of the brothers sold the property to the state of Ohio. In the 1960s, um, the Ohio Historical Society reconfigured the fort to where by 1974, the fort itself officially opened to the public. August 4, 1969, Fort Meigs was designated as a National Historic Landmark. So it just recently celebrated its 54th birthday as a National Historic Landmark. And to think that my wife and I got to be um, a part of history by visiting Fort Meigs last month, uh, we wouldn't have traded our time spent there. Um, if you asked me would I go back and visit the fort again and uh, witness another reenactment, absolutely. I probably, probably would learn something new that I didn't know before. But uh, nonetheless, uh, this, like all other podcast book topic series, this uh, has certainly been well, well been worth the time um, to uh, investigate and research and be able to share with you all, my fellow listeners. Um, I hope to be back on the air again soon, um, because I do know this, that when I am back on the air again next, we will be discussing a new uh, book topic podcast series. My goal is to be back on the air with you all within a week's time. I do need to have time to, um, you know, prepare. I also need to have time to make sure that wherever we go next, that it is the right book to discuss. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'd like to talk about this one. But one thing I should point out to you all is that I make sure to do my homework, research. Yes, I may have read the book, but it might not automatically mean that it might be the one to do. So I want to be ready to, when I'm on the air, I want to be ready, but I want to be ready for the right reasons. Because once you get started, there's no going back. In other words, I want to make sure that once I'm started and ready to go, that you not only will you all be ready to go, but that we're all on the same page. Well, thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. And I look forward to being with on the air with you all again next time when we embark on a new season. And wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.